Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Let us always, always adore him. Yeah. Have a seat, everyone. So I'm Summer, and for those who weren't here last week, I'm a play therapist, and I'm busy helping Mark um, talk about his Theology of Play series. So this is week two. Um, And so last week I touched on the importance of why it's important. And this week, I hope to touch on two things. One being how to equip ourselves for play, and two, why the right space is important for play. So when we look at play, we understand that play is usually a concept designed for kids. You know, kids have play dates. Play is pretty much something kids do as part of their school routine. But when we look at adults, play is almost seen as socially inappropriate. Like if I had to go to Charlestown Square and say, hey, do you want to play a game of rock, paper, scissors? I might get a few weird looks. But in the spirit of play, it doesn't mean we can't play in church. So can I have two volunteers? No, I'm just kidding. Can um, John T and my dad come up? So with social distancing and everything, we've got to just keep it in the family. Um, So do you guys know how to play Jing Chong Cha? Oh, rock, paper, scissors. (laughs) Okay, so rock, paper, scissors. You face each other and you go rock, paper, scissors, shoot, right? So we know that scissors beats rock beats scissors, paper beats rock, and scissors beats paper. Yeah. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. So we're going to have three rounds. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, so best of three. All right, when you're ready. Go for it. All right, do you want me to call? Okay. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Okay, ready. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. That's typical dads, huh? Typical dads. No, no, no. Okay, that doesn't count. Okay, another round. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh. All right, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, one all. One all. All right. So the final round. Tiebreaker. All right. right. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh! Oh. (laughs) Love that. (laughs) Love a good bit of healthy competition. Well done, babe. I told you to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. All right. So four points on how to equip ourselves for play. Number one, play is a choice. It all starts with a choice. As children, play is acceptable, as we spoke about. It's encouraged, um, and it's every teacher and parent's dream to watch their child play. However, as adults, as we've spoken about, this thought is entirely flipped. Um, As teenagers, when we grow up, we're constantly told to behave, be responsible, act maturely. And in a way, we just kind of grow up thinking that now play is something that children do. And this is why we might find it difficult to play or it doesn't come as naturally as it once used to. So when we look at play, sometimes as adults it seems distant. And what I've come to learn as play is a choice is that we can't always control what happens to us, but we can control how we respond to it. And I think the perfect way to highlight this is that I was listening to a podcast from Joyce Meyer a couple months ago and she, she explained it like this. After a long day of work, 
you come home, you usually throw your bag down or walk yourself to the kitchen or it's very forlorn or it's very, oh, I've had a long, hard day. And she said she stands at her door for 10 to 15 seconds before she enters the house and she's like, you're going to be cool. You're going you're gonna to just drop everything. You're going to just be happy, be excited to like, see your kids, see your family and you're just going to enjoy seeing them. And she kind of gives herself this like, little bit of a pep talk and then she goes into her house and she's like, whoa, I'm home. Like, I get to be with my family. I get to come home today. I get to be a part of my family and have fun and enjoy the small moments. And I think we take that for granted sometimes. We take for granted coming home and just being delighted in the sheer joy that's family. And it's contagious. Our family would want to be around people like that as well. And I think that's just really powerful. So play is a choice. Two, the removal of pride. When I look at what equips us to play, I often think what stops us from playing. And it's pride. Pride stops us. Because as we let pride in, it limits us from our play experience because we're too cool or we're more interested in worried or worried about what other people think of us. And there's this common saying that says, pride become, comes before the fall. And it's true. Pride really limits us. And in order to equip ourselves, we've got to choose humility. We've got to be humble. We've got to say, let me just embrace this new. Let me put my guard down. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Because if I feel joy in being silly, that's what counts. And as Mark highlighted last week, it is important to come to God like a child. Yeah. And this is the same perspective. We've got to choose joy with that childlike um, perspective. Yeah. Now, as we know, my dad's really silly and funny. And <laughs> as a kid, I was always embarrassed. Um, but I love it. I really love it. And so last week, we were shopping at LD. And he went and got his groceries. I got my groceries. And we came together. And... Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's really funny. Um, <laughs> do you know when you tell the joke before, the, like the punchline before the joke? Anyway, and um, so we get to the register, and the guy who was serving us says, "Oh, how's your day going?" And in all serious, my dad goes, "Oh, I'm having such a bad day." And the guy's like, "Oh, really? What's wrong?" And he goes, "My daughter just got out of prison yesterday." <laughs> and I'm like, "Dad!" <laughs> and the more I'm trying to defend myself, the more my dad's like, "Son, it's okay. You can just accept it." <laughs> and I was just, and in that moment, instead of having a good laugh, and you could have made like a funny moment and had a bit of a banter, my pride took a hold of me and go like, "No, I need to defend myself." And my dad's just having a good laugh, and that's the pride I'm talking about, where I could have just laughed and gone along and be like. Yeah, I was in for assault or something. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, I hit my dad or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, I could have just enjoyed it, but I didn't. And that just goes to show that my pride took over. Number three, stepping outside of your comfort zone. As adults, in order to overcome pride, we need to step out of our comfort zone. We need to try new things. Or, And although it can be overwhelming and we can feel a bit awkward, it just takes one step. It just takes one small thing to do something different in order for that. My mum used to say 20 seconds of courage just to do something silly and it'll be fine. All right, and last point four, choose playful environments. Be intentional about surrounding yourself with a playful environment, people, and opportunities. Surround yourself with people who uplift you, encourage you, and almost make you want to be a better version of yourself in a playful terms. Likewise, your close network, challenge them. Be a little silly with you. All right, and last topic. Let's move on to talk about why the right play space is important. For children, establishing the right space is important for three reasons. Safety, a place to process, and opportunity. 
Now, in our practice for terminally ill um, clients, the main goal of their um, time with us is to process their grief or to process what they're going through, their, their grapple with death or how they going to, what's life like afterwards or, you know, is there a life afterwards? Just those kind of thing. And sometimes it's joy that they want to process, sometimes it's anger, but that's up to them and that's a safe place for them to process all of that. But it's all done in an environment that is safe and it allows them to process their trauma in whatever way they need to without parents around or am I going to hurt mum's feeling if I say this or should I be upset about that and so on. Where another developing child might use play to facilitate growth. So, for example, um, I've had a client who won't look at me for several weeks, several sessions. They just can't. They're too traumatised to look at another person and it's really hard for them to look at people. But I remember the day he looked at me. And I was like, like I was so proud because Mm. it's a moment of growth that is just so powerful. But wouldn't look at me, that's growth. And now he does, and now we have great relationship, and it's really, really precious. Um, So therefore, it's important to work out why we need play first in order to choose the right play space. Um, And with adults, the same applies. We first need to think why play is important for us so that we can choose the right environment to play. For one person, play might be a distraction from anxiety or depression. For another person, play might be a way to accomplish a competitive sport or reach that fulfillment that they crave. And I, would, I just want to finish off and say there's a show on Netflix at the moment called Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds. And it's pretty great. Have some of you guys watched it? It's literally Jonty's job and my job combined. Wow. And, um, it's about these older adults and they're paired with a bunch of four-year-olds. And it's great to see the benefit because they start to play. These adults who have thought they've lost their connection in life or they, don't, they just feel so lonely, they're almost reignited with this four-year-old's energy and passion to just want to play. And at the start, they're very reluctant to play. And at the end, they're like, oh, let me play. Let me walk. Let me do this. So if you haven't watched it, really recommend it. Um, it's a good laugh, but it's also... Very wholesome and heart, like heartwarming. So just to end, I want to encourage you. How are you equipping yourself to play? Do you need to be more humble? Do you need to be a little bit more silly? I don't know. But I truly hope that you find your play after this series. Thank you. Well done, Summer. Thank you so much. Hey, Daryl, how scary is it when your kids start preaching, eh? We think it's so nice, but then they drag the stories out. I heard your groan when you started. If you sit near me when my kids preach, you'll hear that groan from me. I'm like, ooh, here we go. <laughs> I love that. The, the, four-year-old, the four-year-olds with the older people, you know, just put up the picture of the, the grandkid picture. Um, if you've got the one with both of us. Because this one, it was an historic moment, I'll tell you why, because in my, my family of origin kind of disappeared, really. Um, they all started dying and my brother lives overseas. So there was a 15-year journey of just losing my family of origin one by one. And I'm thinking, we're going backwards, like, when's the, <laughs> when's the fruitful thing going to happen? And then this year, you know, after the 15-year journey, 11 weeks apart... It's like bang, bang, and, and the increase starts again. And I think that's why 
as older people, when we have grandkids, we get really pumped because the first thing, I don't know about you guys, the first thing that occurred to me was, okay, I'll probably die soon, but look what I'm replaced by. How cool is it? But there, there is that regenerate thing in us in the way that God creates us. So it's pretty special. Um, Play is about interaction for joy and freedom. There are no winners and losers in play. You cannot fail at play, but you can succeed. We read out of Matthew last week, and today's the final part in the series, by the way. Um, Today we'll read Mark 10 from verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And we saw it this morning in worship. That was like the exact example of what we're preaching about today. Um, Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. Um, Just a couple of steel fidget who's running a course in our church, great psychologist. He's, he's um, been a doctor and a, and a gynecologist and a psychologist and a counsellor. Like, I think he's in his 70s or 80s now, just a legend. Just some of his truths, just this week that he shared. God uses the times when we hit the wall. It deals with the games we play in life to help us cope that aren't going to really work long term. And when we hit the wall, it's time for change. We go to God because your ways are failing. Um, As long as we can start to begin a change journey. I heard a refugee um, from Afghanistan who's now resettled in New Zealand and doing really well. He won some educational award, but, you know, English is his third language. Um, He just said this. He said, I realised that trial, and this trial almost killed him six times, getting there from here you know, smuggled and boats sinking and rescued, like just nearly died so many times, just got out of it with the shirt on his back. All their belongings were lost when the boat went down. He just said this. He said, that trial has taught me that our trials, when they come to us, are like an unwrapped gift from God. (laughs) And not everyone unwraps the gift. So there's something that we can draw out of our trials, ridiculous as that would sound when that trial's just hit you in the face, you can unwrap it and come out of that a better person and be fully restored by God. Um, He said the head, the thinking, has to abdicate. So don't stop thinking altogether. Start walking into poles. (laughs) The head has to abdicate and let the heart listen to God. That's why that scripture says, and a little child shall lead them. Not, not all the time, because sometimes the adult has to, uh, you know, the, the thinking adult has to override the immaturity of the child. So we're talking about being childlike, not childish. But very often in the God things, we're letting the inner child inside us lead us because that's from the heart. That's the part that's hearing, to, hearing God and he's uncomplicated. So many guys, you know, as we listen and share, they have real trouble, don't they, as we listen, getting their head out of the way. For all of us, I don't know, for guys, the head journeys, it's like when our wives, you know, share some difficulty and they just want us to go, gee, that must be tough. And we go, I'll fix it for you. Do this, do that. And they're like, no, oh, just shut up. You know, like, guys, we've got to get our head out of the way and learn, learn how to listen to our heart. Um, let me just 
there's a famous story called The Selfish Giant. I've, I've done a short summary of it that I hope captures it. Um, this is written in 1888 by Irish novelist Oscar Wilde. Know that name. But I found out, uh, I found a little note someone said to me years ago, when I, before we even came to the church. He actually based this on Zechariah 8, which is the scripture we read last week about the sound of children playing in the street. And God says, it may seem marvellous to you, but it will also seem marvellous to me. And he took that concept and he, and he wrote this story and it goes like this. And the photo will come up. Yeah, that's the, that's the end of the story photo. Uh, you can leave it up though. Um, so this, there's this selfish giant. When he was away from his house with the beautiful garden, the local children would play in the garden. He came home one day and found them playing and he tried to put up with it, but they were way too noisy. And he goes, it's mine, it's mine. Go away! And that big booming giant voice so the kids didn't come back. Spring never came that year for the selfish giant. After many years of loneliness with no flowers in his garden, he awoke one morning to the sound of birds. He looked out and flowers had returned. One little boy was playing in the garden and the giant came out to look more closely and the little boy ran up and hugged him with love. The giant was never the same. The love of the innocent child had changed him forever. And so he invited all the children to come back and play every day. It became his greatest joy to watch them and listen to them in the garden. That sound of children playing was his greatest joy. Months later, the little boy had died and didn't come anymore. The giant missed him terribly. When, you know, and the story goes on for years. When the giant grew old and feeble and was near his end, the boy appeared alone very early one morning in the garden. The giant ran out and they hugged. But the giant noticed wounds in his hands and his feet and he sighed. Who has wounded thee? I will slay them. And it brought up every ounce of anger and suppression that he lived in his whole life. He was furious. But the little boy says this to him. Sir, these are the wounds of love. You let me play in your garden, and now you shall come to live with me in my garden called paradise. That afternoon when the children came, they found the giant dead under a tree, covered in, in blossoms and smiling. <laughs> It just brilliantly sums up the thief on the cross, the sound of the children playing, the cost of being too selfish and hating the sound of children playing, the cost of not sharing our things. Um, it's just brilliant, and I just want to teach a couple of things out of that. Uh, after I read that when I was preparing this week, I, I realised something about Roz, because um, Ellie has this same spirit. Ellie's number one thing that she loves in life and she's becoming a psychologist like you, Summer, is she loves to make people laugh. It's her thing. Um, and I thought, that's Roz. She gets that off Roz. And I, I just came up with this statement that was a revelation about my own marriage. Um, Roz has a playful spirit. It has taken her to high places in our denomination and in our state. It's helped her create a great atmosphere in our church. Now, I wrote this. She makes the whole world laugh I make her laugh. 
Isn't that funny? My sense of humour isn't as good as hers, but there's something about I've got this thing, I can just make a laugh, and it's probably the most powerful bonding aspect in our whole marriage. Isn't that interesting? Play is an alternative creative reality to the brutal world we live in. Um, Someone said this, I forgot to write who said it, but I think it's Charles Spurgeon. It overcomes the spirit of mammon, getting and spending. So both those things are nice, aren't they? Getting and spending. I love that. We work hard. Like it's scriptural, getting and spending, but boy, in our age and our culture, we can get just completely boarded in by getting and spending. And that's what the spirit of mammon is, that everything's about earning and getting. And sometimes we've got to break out of that and, and that, that play thing can help us do that. And I'll, I'll share a couple of things of what, what adult play is in, in a minute. Um, all right. Guy's driving in his car, way too intense. His whole life is getting and spending. He sees this big sign that says slow. Stops his car, gets out, punches the sign and says, am not. That's what we like when we're too intense. <laughs> Second and last point. Um, I want to tell you the story of Emile Zadapek that uh, Ellie put me onto in a running book. She was training for a half marathon and a friend put her onto this running book. Um, and I remember this guy for a few reasons. But it's one of the best stories I've ever seen about someone having a playful spirit and it totally sustaining them through some of the most difficult things and achieving at a really high level. So just let me read it to you because it tells its own story and then I've just got a few things to close on. Uh, Emil Zadapak, some say was the greatest distance runner of all time, but his career was cut short, so we never really got to find that out. Um, He's famous for his performances in the 1952 Helsinki Olympics, which were the ones before Melbourne. There was this Czech soldier who ran with such horrendous form that he looked as if he'd just been stabbed through the heart. And he did. He ran weird. Nothing technically correct, Jonty. But Emil Zadapek loved running. That's it. So much that even when he was still in army boot camp, he used to grab a flashlight and go off on 20-mile runs through the woods at night in his combat boots in winter. When the snow was too deep, as soon as it thawed enough for him to get outside, he'd go nuts. He'd run 400 metres as fast as he could over and over for 90 repetitions, resting in between by jogging 200 metres. First guy ever to do interval training. By the time he was finished, he'd done more than 33 miles of speed work. It's building. Um, the press was so critical of him when he was coming through and starting to win races, and everyone laughed at the way he ran. He goes, look, I'm not talented enough to run and smile at the same time. The good thing is it's not figure skating. You only get points for speed, not style. Even in the middle of a race, he liked to chat with other runners. <laughs> At away meets, he'd sometimes have so many new friends in his hotel room that he'd have to give up his bed and sleep outside under a tree because he was brought up in poverty, so sleeping outside was not a difficulty to him. Once, right before an international race, he became pals with an Australian runner who was hoping to break the Australian 5,000-metre record. Zadapek was only entered in the 10,000-metre race. 
But he came up with a plan. He told the Aussie to drop out of his race and line up next to Zatapec instead. And you could technically break the world record if you, if you like, say, for 5,000, if you ran it in a 10,000-metre race. I don't know what the rule is today, but back then you could. So Zatapec spent the first half of the 10,000-metre race pacing his new friend to the record and then sped off to attend to his own business and win the 10,000 metres. Zatapec was a bald, self-coached, 30-year-old apartment dweller from a struggling Eastern European backwater when he arrived for the 1952 Olympics in Helsinki. Since the Czech team was so thin, Zatapec had his choice of distance events, so he chose them all. This is long distance events. He lined up for the 5,000 metres and won with a new Olympic record. He then lined up for the 10,000 metres and won for his second goal in another new record. He'd never even been in a marathon, but what the hell? He already had two gold medals. He decides to run the marathon for the first time. Um, uh, Zatopek's inexperience quickly became obvious. It was a hot day, so England's Jim Peters, a cagey old runner and world record holder, decided to use the heat to make Zatopek suffer. By the 10-mile mark... So I, I love this. I love the um, tactics of racism. When I was an athlete, I always had a tactic. They hardly ever worked, but I had a tactic. I was so good trying to put it into practice. By the 10-mile mark, Peters was already 10 minutes under his own world record pace and pulling away from the field. Zatopek wasn't sure if anyone could really... Um, sorry, I've got to sustain such a blistering pace. So he accelerated, caught up to Peters. Excuse me, he says, pulling alongside Peters. This is my first marathon. Aren't we going too fast? <laughs> no, Peters replied, too slow. He's thinking if Zatopek was dumb enough to ask, he was dumb enough to deserve the answer he got. Zatopek was surprised. You say too slow, he asked again. As um, are you sure the pace is too slow? Yes, Peter said, then he got a surprise of his own. Okay, thanks. Zatopek took off. When he burst out of the tunnel and into the stadium, he was met with a roar not only from the fans but from athletes of every nation who thronged to track to cheer him in because <coughs> they all knew it was his first row. Zatopek snapped the tape with his third Olympic record, but when his teammates charged over to congratulate him, they were too late. The Jamaican sprinters had already hoisted him on their shoulders and were parading him around the infield. Now, watch this change. Because that childlike spirit's indomitable sometimes, and I want you to see this. When the Red Army marched into Prague in 1968 to crush the pro-democracy movement, Zatopek was given a choice. He can get on board with the Soviets and serve as a sports ambassador, or he can spend the rest of his life cleaning toilets in a uranium mine. Zatopek chose the toilets, and just like that, one of the most beloved athletes in world history disappeared. So we never got to see in Melbourne in 56 and Rome in 1960 if he could have become the greatest runner of all time. At the same time, and, and I loved Ron Clark when I was a kid just watching him run, at the same time, coincidentally, his rival for the title of the world's greatest distance runner was also taking a beating. Ron Clark, a phenomenally talented Australian. While Zatopek had to teach himself to run in snow at night after sentry duty, the Australian was enjoying sunny mornings jogging along the beaches of the Mornington Peninsula with expert coaching. Everything Zatopek could wish for, Clark had plenty of. Freedom, money, elegance and hair. 
Ron Clark set world records. He was younger than Zanovic, so he came out. He set world records in every distance from 800 metres to marathon. So he went back even further than Zanovic, but he never won an Olympic gold. And it just the Australian press were ruthless with him. In Mexico in 68, he took off and he was leading the race by such a long way, this is in the 10,000, that he was home and hose, but he got really bad altitude sickness because Mexico City is high up in the mountains and it was a real issue in those games. He nearly died. They had to revive him. Some, some stories say he actually, you know, actually died and some say he, he was near death because he, you know, he was trying so hard to do it. He didn't know what to do. He, he feared um, that his return to Australia would be met with so much criticism. So he went home via the Czech Republic and searched for Zadopec. They met, and at the end of their meeting, Zadopec sent him off with a strong embrace and a small parcel and said, because you deserve it. Clark thought, you know, it was going to be a letter to the world, you know, I'm, it's like I'm living in prison, set me free. And it wasn't. When Clark opened it up, it was Zatopec's 1952 Olympic 10,000-metre gold medal. For Zatopec to give it to the man who'd replaced his name in the record books and had it easy in life was extraordinarily noble. And he gave it away precisely the moment in his life when he was losing everything else. It was an act of unimaginable compassion. His enthusiasm, his friendliness, his love of life shone through every moment. And overcome, Ron Clark said later, there is not and never was a greater man than Emil Zatopek. The indomitableness of a childlike spirit. We think it's weak and soft, but it's not. Do you know what interested me is I just thought back after I prepared the message about what the Bible tells us about Jesus' life. His birth gets big mentions, you know, zero to one. But it doesn't kick in again till he's 12 and he kind of has a fight with his parents and gets lost and then it's silent again while he's probably learning to be a carpenter and fighting with his brothers. And then it kicks in again for his last three years of his life. And I thought, why the silent years? Why one to 11? Why was there silence? And the only thought I had was, just let him play. Leave him alone. It's going to be tough enough later on. And I thought, there's a sacredness over 1 to 11, isn't there? There's just, just something about that hit me. Just interestingly enough, you know, talking about the dignity of play. Um, book of Revelation that says so much about heaven. Child will put his hand in the viper's nest and not be bitten. I don't think that's so much like he's out in the forest adventuring. I think he's just playing. <laughs> It's a play thing. The play of heaven is, inc- I think that's an incredible description of it all. The lion will lay down with the lamb. I love that. Don't we love that image so much? In heaven, it talks about singing, dancing, worship, making a joyful noise, praise, play, laughter. Um, the sound of heaven will be interesting. Because Roz loves music. She always has music on, and it's nice. And I listen to nice music in the car like this. Um, we at the Barrington Tops hiking once when I was much younger. What struck me about right in the, the bowels, in the nice sense of the word, of the Barrington Forest with those trees that are hundreds of years old and the 
Everything's alive and lush and uh, there's life everywhere. The sound's a whole symphony. You know how, so we talked about the sound of children playing, how good that is. And I, I think the wilderness has a sound that's like a symphony. But I, it just struck me, whoa, what's the sound of heaven going to be like? Wow. Whoa. And I'll finish with this. Ros mentioned this to me. I said, I went through the message with her. Is this okay? She goes, what about Abba Father? That sums up our whole relationship to God. We're the child. He's the parent. Abba Father. Abba means daddy, basically. Daddy. So that's our phrase for him. It's not, it's not yes, sir. Yes, Father. It's, hey, Daddy, you know, can I come and jump on your knee? Can we wrestle? There'll be no wrestling up here, son. <laughs> no, no, no. What did he say? Let the children come. Wow. I just love that. Thanks, Ross. So. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macroylifechurch.com.au.